Hey everyone, this is Will, and welcome to this brand new and exciting episode of The Missing Piece. Now, if you follow the news closely, especially regarding China, now recently, the current sitting president of China paid a short visit to one of the important regions of China, which is Hong Kong. Well, given the fact that this year actually marked the 25th anniversary uh, since the unification between Hong Kong and the mainland China. But meanwhile, that China has been seen on one hand, one of the political rivals, not only with the US, but also with countries across the continent. But on the other hand, countries in Southeast Asia, they're seeing China as the opportunity to build their political and social influence. But in this episode, I think it's important that we need to dive into the internal system regarding China and also this ongoing political and social battle within the Communist Party. So that's why today it's my great honor to invite Dr. Zoe Liu, and she is the Fellow for International Political Economy at the Council on Foreign Relations. And we're going to talk to Dr. Liu about her amazing article and especially regarding this economic war between China and the rest of the world. Without further ado, Dr. Liu, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Will, for having me. It's an honor. No problem, Dr. Liu. The pleasure is all mine. Now, again, let's get to the question right away. Initially, when I discovered you, because this amazing article that you wrote, and it's entitled, China is hardening itself for economic war, and right off the beginning, this is something you wrote, and I quote, Chinese policymakers are increasingly convinced that the U.S. is determined to implement a full-fledged strategy of containment against China, end quote. I guess the question I want to ask, or we are very interested in knowing is, where does the U.S. get the source and to understand that China is waging or either a political or economic war against the U.S. So can you help us to understand what are you trying to say or what were you trying to say that you are saying the U.S. is determined? What about the source? How did they get information? Uh, right now, you know, you, if exactly as you, as, you, as you said, if people follow the uh, news closely, uh, you probably wouldn't be surprised to find that uh, Western policymakers have constantly been seeing these days to say China is determined to uh, decouple from the West. Mm. Despite that, you know, our, the Chinese understanding or the narratives from Chinese policymakers or Chinese academics, trying, they were trying to uh, argue that it, China is putting into these positions the so-called forced decoupling. Mm. So there is this kind of a back and forth going on right but from the u.s perspective the uh current narrative really originates or reflects a kind of deep-seated uh, sense of vulnerabilities mm -hmm. uh, among western policymakers since the end since you know the uh, global financial crisis 2007 to 2008 and then followed by uh, exacerbating domestic social economic issues such as inequality so on and so forth right so there is a sense of and at the same time there this is also uh, the relative rise of China and uh, since President Xi took, uh, took power in 2000 uh, late 2012 and then you know officially 2013 
Western policymakers initially thought he would be a very reform-oriented leader, mm. but then there is a perceived uh, turn uh, in terms of um, his policymaking, both economically and socially and uh, foreign, uh, in foreign policy arena. And more specifically by this, I mean from Western policymakers' perspective, the perceived president of China under President Xi Jinping becomes much more aggressive, mm. both in terms of the economic international China's international economics and policies as as you know the, the the BRI Belt and Road Initiative and you know many scholars from our politici politicians in the West describe that as China's intentionally waging or set up a debt mm. trap. Uh, and then on the uh, diplomatic front, uh, people citing in the West citing China's uh, coercive use of economic statecraft, whether it is Norwegian salmons or Australian wines and uh, coals or Filipino bananas, right? You know, China is being perceived as increasingly becoming aggressive. Therefore, and then on the other hand, China did not necessarily back up. See, during the Trump administration, with regard to the um, the ever escalating U.S.-China trade war. So, you know, in this, the, I would say since two thousand, uh, since the the end of since since the the global financial crisis and the relative uh, perceived the relative decline of the West versus the relative rise of of China seems to put these two countries in um, in clash. Hmm. You know, uh, Dr. Liu, again, as you were describing, I guess we wouldn't say the beginning of the clash or we'll say the end of the clash. But one thing that you stood out that during your description, the going back to the word decoupling. And we know that since the deadlock between China and the U.S. took place, we have heard the word decoupling for many times and during many occasions. Not only from the U.S. political uh, officials or economic uh, experts, but also within Chinese government as well. I mean, again, if we follow the state uh, media, the decoupling, again, no one would like to see the two largest economies would like to decouple with each other. But now, sure. going back to your article, and the next question is very simple. How much do you think China can afford to decouple, <clears throat> excuse me, from the U.S.? So in other words, at this moment, every single country is facing this economic shift you know, before the pandemic, in the midst of the pandemic. But for China today, if I'm not mistaken, again, as you mentioned, the Belt and Road Initiative, this is something that can can be pushed in a greater way, especially for the Chinese Communist Party and for the Chinese economy. But imagine if the country decides, hypothetically, to decouple from the U.S., how much can China afford if China decides or were to decide to take such actions, how much benefit or how much drawbacks will both countries receive? Can you help us to understand? Yeah, that's a good question, Will. And, uh, you know, from uh, economic, from, for, for, for economists, the, the, the favorite thing to do is not necessarily making forecasting because we are terribly at doing that, but uh, we are, we are, we, we wanted to analyze things, uh, social or economic issues mm. from the perspective of the costs and benefits, right? The cost benefit analysis. Mm. And uh, in this particular scenario, you know, the so-called decoupling, uh, first of all, let me just be, 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 be clear. I, I am strongly against 
any narratives or any mm. possibilities of decoupling because it hurts everybody. Mm. So, uh, in, in other words, from, 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 when I look at all these narratives or the potential moves from decoupling the U.S.-China trade wars, both country hurts because mm. you know, uh, and it and it hurts not just the two giants, but also uh, you know all these middle powers, all the middle powers that in between China and the United States because nobody wanted to. Make a choice. That's right. You know, Singapore doesn't want to make a choice. Vietnam doesn't want to make a choice. Mm. Neither neither Japan or any European Union countries, right? So, uh, let me just be, be be clear that 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 you know, it's going to be if if decoupling were ever to happen, it is going to be extremely costly, mm. and there, it will be collateral damages, not just for the United States and China, these two economies, but also for uh, you know the the, the world, just in, in general. Now. Let's just for the sake of um, you know this mental exercise. Let's say hypothetically, if you know any any policymakers woke up a day and decided you know they just want to go go ahead with it. So the the, the cost, I would say, there would be tremendous amount mm. of direct political and economic cost for both countries, and then there would be secondary effect or even a third degree of effect on and on other countries, right? Mm. So who are dependent upon both the United States and China from the perspective of supply chains, uh, technology, uh, you know, the supply of uh, critical minerals, mm. the refinery process as well as you know uh talent and uh uh the the a lot of these advanced industries tech advanced industrial standard because mm. you know right now we are saying not just for example you know the 5g mm. Huawei, uh, Huawei had hired you know more than 400 lawyers to basically uh, lobbying for the Huawei standard versus right. you know the the European or American standard. So if the world, let's say, if we were decou- de- degraded mm. into a scenario where there is a, a Western standard versus Amer- a Chinese standard or, or the so-called East and West split, we might end up having hey, you know, my cell phone might not be able to call your cell phone because the two are of the the the, the network are of two different standards and hence we probably need some sort of intermediary or transitory stuff to help us communicate this is going to be very costly Uh, so it's uh, you you know i guess what i wanted to say is the company would be a game of chicken and and, uh what what end up happening would would probably be or what would help policymakers to think about it is the the cost on which side would be bigger. If somebody decided that the cost on the enemy's side would be bigger bigger, or the adversary side would be bigger, probably, you know, that's, uh, that, that would be a enough, good enough reason for some, some people to, you know, out of their mind to decide to go, go ahead with it. Mm. Dr. Liu, that was a great point. Again, um, it was only a hypothetical scenario, but today we are looking at year 2022, and no one would like to see two largest economies competing neck to neck with each other. I mean, there's nothing wrong with the economic competition, but if we are really coming down to decoupling away from each other, or decoupling, which means separation away from each other, I think that would be the end of the whole economic system. Now, let's get to the next question, Dr. Liu. Go back to the article, you know, again, one word that you use strategically that you mentioned, it's called self-reliance strategy. You know, when we look at the Chinese history or when we look at the Chinese Communist Party, 
I guess many words could come to our mind, but one thing is the word called preservation. So in other words, that we know that Chinese people for centuries has, I mean, they are well known for relying or depending on either the government or depending on their on themselves, their own source, their own labor. But again, looking at today, something that you wrote, I want to share with everyone that you said that it will double down on pursuing a pre is existing self-reliance strategy and sanction proof that Chinese economy while bolstering its offensive dual economic capabilities by reinforcing China's strategic position in the global supply. Now, my next question to you is how much can China afford this what, what we called or what you call Dr. Liu this self-reliance strategy? I mean, again, I'm not saying that China cannot do it, but given the fact that today if let's just say if one country decides to run its own course despite the complication despite the globalization significantly speaking or realistically speaking it's got to be really difficult so can you help us to what does that mean to have this self-reliant strategy and number two how feasible it is today for china or for any other country to build this self-reliance strategy in terms of its economic scenario yeah, thank you, Will, for uh, another great question. You know, I would say, you know, uh, let me you know, just sort of step back a little bit, you know, um, by, by saying that China, this is not the first time that China ever proposed to self-reliance, right? Mm. You know, the country funded, when the country was established in 1949, it was funded at a time where there was no good friend except the Soviet Union, which China That's actually... Right you know, very suspect, we're very suspicious of, right? So in many ways, China was funded with no close, no trusted friend mm. in, in, in many ways. And the, the only friend that China took to side with, you know, take, take you know, the so-called take on one side. Right. Ended up in, you know, it quickly soured within 10 years, right? You know, the Sino Soviet split in the late 50s and 60s. Right. So, and in many ways, China, does China or the Communist Party in particular, does, Chinese, does the Chinese Communist Party have experience handling, you know, international isolation or containment? Mm -hmm. It has. However, I would argue that the cost of, um, um, you know, looking for a scenario in which China has to rely upon itself today is going to be much more costly mm. than uh, it, what, what it was before because in 1949 China you know China, China, the Communist Party inherited a war-torn economy right in many mm. ways China China was not, you know China in, in, in 1949 is by, by by no means comparable that's to right. China today, because you know when China was established, it was uh, poor. It was among the poorest country in the world by uh, by the World Bank standard. If I I, rem I remember, it probably like among the, the bottom five. Mm. You know, poor than many many African countries. That's right. <laughs> right. But but now you know China has already become. Uh, emerged as en route by many many estimations, right? By many estimations, China might you know take over the United States to be the largest economy by uh, 2025, you know, which is you know two three years from two three years from now. So uh, depending on uh, in other words, China's rise from uh, a poorest country to one of the major superpowers in the world actually benefited from China's participation mm -hmm. in internationalization in global. Uh, globalization. Mm. So, in many ways, globalization benefited Chinese people, Chinese economy, Chinese labor, Chinese supply chain, mm. and uh, in many ways, it saved 
the Chinese Communist Party in, in many ways, because you know, uh, uh, many many scholars would argue, both the Chinese scholars and foreign scholars, you know, would argue. Well, you know, uh, for a long period of time, China's the Communist Party derives its uh, political legitimacy from rapid economic growth, mm. or at least for a long period of time, it has been that way, right? Mm. So, uh, if the Communist Party ever want, if uh, you know, the Communist Party ever wanted to uh, self inflict a self-inflict a uh, you know self-reliance strategy meaning it is it is going to cut its own arms and legs by not participating in global in globalization that is going to be terribly wrong mm. and i think you know policymakers knows that you know whether if, you know if you look at president xi jinping prime minister li keqiang or any other you know or or liu he or, or Gang, you know all these chinese makers policymakers none of them argued that they are looking for uh, self, they are looking for a decoupling. Everybody is telling right. you this is bad. We are not looking for it, and China is championing globalization, right? But the narrative has shifted to the point where they've had to prepare for the worst. The idea is, well, you know, since Donald Trump coming into power, there is this, you know, U.S.-China relations has been deteriorating, and uh, you know, the the on the one hand you know throughout president xi's terms uh, a lot of you know he has been dealing with the three general uh now three generations of american policymakers from That's obama right. trump and biden everybody imp imposed sanctions on chinese firms and uh for a variety of reasons whether it's xinjiang whether it is you know connections to the pla for a variety right. of reasons right so you know in, uh, you know, the Chinese policymakers cannot feel secure mm. when they are receiving, constantly receiving this kind of, you know, this kind of treatment from from U.S. policymakers. So, uh, and obviously, you know, COVID did not help. So, right. uh, there is reason for the there, there is a reason for Chinese policymakers to think that this is a critical moment where the West decided to turn their back against China. Mm. You know, Dr. Liu, again, you made several significant points, especially regarding the current sitting president, Xi Jinping. You know, we're going to talk about that in a second. But again, coming back to the world, and we know that when U.S., well, let me take a step back. While U.S. and China are battling with each other economically or politically, each side is making greater effort in terms of strengthening the relationship with friends and with allies. And surely, again, going back to the article, that China today seems, correct me if I'm wrong, Dr. Liu, seems to gain more partners because the Belt and Road Initiative more than ever. Um, it doesn't matter if the country would like to uh, be the partner with China willingly or, again, we're saying the word is by force or without any other choices. But meanwhile, some of the countries are still very sensitive to the U.S. For example, the country of Iran, the country of Afghanistan, you know, uh, and, and also, of course, the ongoing war uh, uh, in Ukraine, the country of Russia. So, Dr. Liu, my next question is, what strategies is China taking or the Chinese government taking today in order to gain more trust from those countries who are having this hesitant or distrust or even what we call disengagement relationship with the U.S. So in other words, we're looking at Russia, we're looking at Iran, we're looking at Afghanistan, we're looking at any other countries, I guess, in Africa, uh, on the African continent. 
they seem to play their chips in the basket of China. But meanwhile, they're willing to walk away or they're willing to disengage themselves with the U.S. What is China doing to convince those countries and how does that hurt U.S. economically? Can you help us to understand that? That's a great question. Well, I, I like the way you 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 are you how you think about it because you know you uh, you you are thinking like a classic military strategist, <laughs> thinking about how to create a wedge in between, uh, you know the the undecided partners versus you know your strategic rivals. I I, I like the way you think of, you think about it. Thanks. And I, I would say you know in many ways again this is you know in times of great power rivalry. Uh, it, it, it's, it, it, it is a tragic moment because it, it is going to hurt a lot of not just themselves, but also mm. spill over collateral damages. But then at the same time, it is also a, an opportunity for many uh, middle powers or smaller powers to trying mm. to exploit both sides isn't it mm. right so it is it's almost like you know high school popularity context all over again because you know you know biden is like uh, biden comes up with the uh, build better better under the international That's version of right. it you know trying to trying to convince everybody hey we are we are offering money and we are offering an alternative to china whereas you know china has also been uh, the chinese government the chinese government has has been uh, trying to say hey you know it, it's great if you are trying to you know put uh, the, the developing countries to finally come mm. over to the world are trying to help develop developing economies uh, and uh, you know the biden put out uh, you know the indo-pacific economic uh, partnership economic framework whereas you know china has its own uh the china has its the its own version of um economic framework in the region mm. or uh, participating in various layers i would say both right. in terms of you know like the trilateral in northeast asia versus the the um the the the, the uh the entire asia pacific right so it almost feels like you know, in in terms of a high school popularity context what uh what what do those what do voters do you know voters would uh, probably get a lot of goodies from both candidates mm. So that's why you know we are seeing that it it almost feel like both the United States and China are making a lot of promises, mm. but it is a matter of you know to what extent countries can deliver. Mm. On the one hand, China has been practicing this for many years because of the state-owned enterprises and and, and all under the framework of uh, or umbrella of the Belt and Road Initiative, and uh, you know we have the China's you know policy banks in particular, you know export import bank in Africa and mm. uh, and all that making a lot of. Um, uh, a lot of loans, regardless whether you know Chinese policy banks actually have has the have the capacity to access mm. the feasibility or to what extent the the pro, the, the project are bank for or not, mm. right? So, uh, you know, China China does not necessarily have strong military presence at the United States, but it does have um, uh, you know a lot of state controlled capital, whereas That's you know the right. United States does not have that. Mm. However, I would I would also wanted to say that uh, although the U.S. government doesn't have a lot of those state-owned capitals, it and you know Congress is notorious for getting together and agree on things, in particular mm. in the, today's political scenario. But American American private sector has been doing a lot of these development uh, issues, develop development project in develop in um, you know uh, in third world you know or developing countries. Mm. It's not that they are not the America or or Europe hasn't been doing it. If you look at 
you know, who are the classic developers in Africa? It's the French, it's the German, it's the Belgian. That's right. So, you know, you, from, and there is all the Japanese. So in many ways, China is not necessarily the only person who is trying to do this. It's just that, you know, the partners, the methodology uh, have been relatively different from uh, the West. And also, you know, China's way has been relatively different from Americans or, or, the, or the Europeans. Hence, hence, and, you know, Chinese firms are, are not necessarily, uh, you know, at their best to do corporate uh, communication. Mm. You know, even if they are doing certain things, the, there is a lack of communication which can be translated mm. or be understood or be interpreted as, oh, this is terrible. This is a lack of, uh, you know, transparency from, you know, Americans' perspective. Therefore, you know, there are these layers of, you know, cultural, business cultural, business governance differences that might help, you know, translate into misunderstandings. But then, you know, I guess the short answer to your question is, Yes, you are right. You know, both countries are trying to make promises, but you know, the agency, the agents are different, and the way of doing business is different. And also, you know, the capacity is different. American mm. or Japanese private sectors—they are good at. They have been accumulating decades of you know capacities of doing environmental assessment, mm. project feasibility assessment, whereas our policy banks—they don't have that. Mm. Dr. Liu, again, I know you're fairly busy, and I got two more questions before letting you go. I want to talk about something recently took place. Again, that's something I also mentioned in the intro. Recently, that sitting Chinese President Xi Jinping paid a short visit to one of the important regions of China, which is Hong Kong. Again, this year marks the 25th anniversary that will either, again, again, you can call it the unification between Hong Kong and mainland China, or even the late article called it, it's called Chinafication. You know, so in other words, for Xi Jinping to visit Hong Kong, to directly not only met the people in Hong Kong, but also keep in mind, he just elected, or should I say, the party just elected a brand new person to be the executive officer for the region. Dr. Liu, my question to you is, how significant was it for Xi Jinping to pay the visit to Hong Kong in person and also deliver the speech? During the speech, he made significant points regarding the future of Hong Kong, the relationship between Hong Kong and mainland China, especially to understand the younger generations, their, uh, their uh, I guess, social or political unrest. So from your perspective, how, what can we make of his trip to Hong Kong and how significant is or was his visit to the people of Hong Kong? Right, that's um, a great question. It's uh, touches upon something that I, I personally care a lot about myself. You know, I, I, I visited Hong Kong uh, both as a tourist and for for uh, for, for conferences, and mm. I well, love the place. You know, the, uh, you know, good food. Uh, despite you know, people always complain that we, you know, Hong Kong people sometimes, unless you are super rich, you, you, you know, many people live in, uh, you know, live in mesh boxes, one mm. on top of another. But hey, it's a very dynamic place, and uh, right. it, it Hong Kong has been a. Uh, very important financial hub and cultural hub in, mm. uh, in, 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 in the world. You know, it's where, in many ways, it's where the East meets the West. Mm. Therefore, I would say, not just normal people realize it, not just the, the British or the Americans know that, leaders of the Communist Party know it. Mm. And it would be terrible 
It would be terrible. It would be an international da image damage and reputation damage if the Chinese Communist Party does not handle Hong Kong, right? Mm. Right? And Hong Kong is also presented as a window for, you know, how they have their scheme for, uh, they have their visions for, for Taiwan. That's right. And over the past few years, you know, they are, the, the, the domestic, they, um, you know, domestic issues within China and, uh, you know, Hong Kong societal, uh, societal, you know, uh, angst against the mainlanders, you know, whether it is people coming to Hong Kong to be babies, so on and so forth, you know, there has been a lot of, uh, you know, societal issues at a people to people level bursting up, mm. right? And a part of, um, you know, the, the narrative that, oh, you know, Hong Kong's future as, you know, international financial hub is dead and all that. So I, I think, you know, this is President Xi's very first trip outside of mainland that's right and in person and if you remember when he gave the when he delivered the speech he was not wearing a mask that's right so you know so i think all these signs it's not you know when when leaders like xi jinping give give a give a, uh, you know make a trip give a speech everything has to be heavily choreographed so i think this is is it has a very important significant meaning as or symbolic meaning but you know the from practical side it shows you know the chinese leaders really wanted to make make, make hong kong right and hey, this is the first time they give it a try with the so-called one country, two system. Hong That's Kong right. was the, uh, is, it was and has been the window. So, you know, the, yes, you know, the, has there been a lot of policy, you know, content, contentious point, national security law, you know, trying to imp impose that in Hong Kong. And, and, and of course that is going to go against uh, you know what, what what western people perceive it or mm. hong kong people local hong kong people perceive it because you know the education system the value system in between mainland and china has been you know dramatically different so you know that this kind of the difference in perceptions because would would, would would contribute to the brewing of this kind of you know uh, misunderstanding as well as the conflict but then on the other hand are there signs to show mainland really wanted to get it right at least from economic and financial mm. side i think yes there is for example you know hong kong monetary authority participated in this original renminbi uh the reason you know renminbi uh liquidity uh regional renminbi liquidity pool right you know they right. uh, announced earlier uh late 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 june right so mm. and many people were, were surprised hey you know what, what does that mean for the, the what does that mean for 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 for, for renminbi internationalization does that mean you know china is trying to you know beat down the U.S. dollar's uh, hegemonic power and trying to take over, mm -hmm. the, you know, uh, the renminbi is trying to take over the dollar. You know, my interpretation is, hey, why why people should be surprised about it? You know, if you look at Hong Kong monetary Hong Kong monetary authorities' policies, they have been doing some some these kind of things for a long time since they participated in the Denson bond, participated in you know trying to develop a renminbi offshore market. So they have been doing it, mm -hmm. and they have been having these renminbi liquidity facilities for several years so it's a natural thing for regional countries regional partners to do so you know in many ways it, it just shows that people i think I, I guess you know the long story short from that perspective at least from economic and financial aspect the chinese communist party wanted to make make hong kong right and uh by strengthening Hong Kong's position in international finance through renminbi, the role of the renminbi, building a renminbi market, uh, Hong Kong probably can get, you know, sort of, a, you know, like a booster mm. as, you know, uh, the at least an alternative, uh, you know, place where people can 
not only have access to dollar liquidity, but also to renminbi liquidity, which is important for countries that you mentioned earlier, whether it is Iran, whether it's Russia, or you know other countries that uh, have have uh, are probably on the verge of being sanctioned by the United States. Mm. Dr. Liu, I want to end our conversation again, going back to your article. This is towards the last proportion of the article that you wrote. It's time for the U.S. to lend a sympathetic ear to countries that have longed for development support or demanded representation in the existing global system before they hear China's appeals instead. And also, the news came out within the past 48 hours that Chinese government one of the representatives within the Chinese government had another phone call exchange uh, with another representative uh, from, from the Biden administration in terms of this economic partnership or this economic uh, a trade war or etc., whatever you call it. But right now, again, as a, an average citizen in both countries, people are still questioning what is the purpose of those phone calls. So in other words, if both sides would like to work together, why can't we see any progress? Is it because US today, it's sitting at a, at, at a crossroads because the midterm election or because people are saying Donald Trump is coming back? You know, we can believe all the rumors or all the facts. But meanwhile, we only hear the news that phone calls after phone calls and conference after conference or visit after visits, but no progress, at least for people on both sides, have not seen, have not heard. So my last question to you, Dr. Liu, is why bother? If there's no progress, why even bother to try it? Or stop all the political sound bites. Let's get to work so that the people can receive or can least see some changes. Help us understand. Yeah, that's uh, that's a great that's a great way to put it. Well, you know, like why bother, right? Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. You know, why there are so many phone calls, and so many, so so many so-called you know bilateral uh, engagement with no progress. Mm. If, but but then, but but then at the same time, right now, I, I would say you know engagement right is probably become a uh, polluted world wor polluted word in the u.s policy making mm. uh making ma making uh fair because uh for anybody who you know especially if you talk to congress people or senators you know the for anybody who try to make a, a case for positive engagement with china you know that person is going to be considered as uh as weak you are not a weak mm. you are not strong enough for to defend america you are putting america's interest at risk so it, you know it, it's so it, it, which the, it, and the reason why you know, why engagement cannot becomes like a taboo world taboo word in american among american policymakers part of that is because well you know the the fragmentation of american politics right now means two parties cannot agree on anything mm. but they can agree on one issue which is china is bad that's so right. so th th that's the ridiculous you know that's a ridiculous part of it and it's very frustrating for 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 scholars and for business people because hey you know if you look at uh, american business business people do they want to 
go to China and uh, do business deals? Yes, of course they want it. That's right. But, uh, uh, but a lot of these policy initiatives and these bad narratives really is not helping. And if you talk with American people, who, American business people who are actually currently in China, they would tell you, well, you know, this is frustrating and we wanted to make sure that the two countries are working together mean right. towards the right direction so that we can return business to normal because in many ways us and china these two countries are the the the, the, the bilateral uh, the bilateral activities are so deeply entrenched in terms of with, with not just in terms of finance or uh, economics or trade but also people to people uh, mm. people to people uh relationship and uh, right now you see american policymakers are trying to call Chinese students as all Chinese students are spies. If they are bad, we should That's stop right. having Chinese students coming to the United States. But hey, if you ask American professors, you ask American universities, they realize, well, you know, we need RAs and TAs who can actually do the job. And we also need, uh, you know, tuitions that Chinese students actually pay. They do not That's take right. student loans from U.S. government. They actually pay tuitions, right? So, you know, it's frustrating for many people. Politicians talk on, at one level, but it's, you know, normal people who go to the groceries have to pay, you know, Donald Trump tax on, uh, tariff on China. Those are the people who actually suffered. Mm. So, but, but I would say, despite all these uh, lack of progress, talks, phone calls, meeting with each other, even it means a fight face to face, it's still important. And I'm a big fan and I'm a big believer in maintaining open communication mm. rather than rhetoric. Let's right. get on the phone and uh, yell at each other. Those are not the kind of communication that I want. I wanted the two countries to have. Instead of the country really have to, yes, I, we understand that we don't agree on each, with each other on so many levels. Uh, but hey, let's see how we can make things better. That's right. And don't you think this is so so much familiar? Anybody who had who have have who who have married or you have a, or you know you have you had a boyfriend or or girlfriend you know hey the two of you are going to fight and there will be moment where the two of you would hate each other to the gut but if you go to a relationship or marriage counselor they would say hey how about you guys just talk frankly right and I I think it's important for the two countries policymakers to recognize that and just to sit down recognize that yes things are not easy but let's just try to make things better. And probably, you know, right now is the, uh, the uh, on the phone. I do not know the details on the uh, about the phone call. I was I was not on the phone call, but uh, uh, judging from the time, judging judging from the timing, you know, the Biden administration is uh, is on is is the time for the administration to review whether the tariffs on the Trump tariffs on China is about to expire or not. So you know, and it would be a good thing. It's a low-hanging fruit. It would be a good thing if uh, Biden, the Biden administration can make a step forward. Dr. Liu, I think that was a very positive and also encouraging note. And again, you know, as someone that who studied communications my whole life, and I believe on one hand, communication is the key. Because as long as we can keep the conversation going, and that means the word engagement. So in other words, neither of the side is willing to quit yet. I mean, again, given the fact that Richard Nixon paid the first visit to China in the year of 1972, and I think that significantly opened the door, not only for the US, but also for the world to see what China looked like. And But today, China is making so hard or trying so hard to present itself to the world. 
But again, ladies and gentlemen, I am very honored to speak to Dr. Zoe Liu, and she's a fellow for International Political Economy at the Council on Foreign Relations. And I strongly encourage everyone to go online and look at Dr. Liu's article and regarding how Beijing or China is preparing for the possible economic war and decoupling with the West. But again, Dr. Liu, thank you so much for taking your time to join the show, and we'd love to uh, have you back on the show. And again, for further discussions as we continue to watch and monitor the political and social cultural changes within China and the Communist Party.